Welcome to Her Stories, a series of podcasts showcasing the diverse expertise, wisdom, and courage of the members of the Mediterranean Women Mediators Network, presented by peace activist Magda Zenon. In each episode, recorded during the coronavirus social isolation period, a different mediator shares her story. Hello, this is Magda. Today on Her Stories, we speak with Maria Kajibavlu, a retired associate professor from the Department of Social and Political Science at the University of Cyprus, a feminist, a conflict resolution expert, and a gender and peace activist. Welcome, Maria. Thank you, Magda. Glad to have this conversation with you. It's also strange to have a conversation so far <laughs> apart, though we are neighbors. <laughs> um, I know. Um, across many Atlantic oceans. I'm in Cyprus and you're in Singapore. Maria, I I know you quite well, but I would like you to introduce Maria to the listeners. Who is Maria? Because you wear many hats and I would like you to tell me who you feel you are. Yeah, I mean, you have already mentioned some of my identities, which has to do mostly with my professional uh, identity. And uh, I think for uh, our conversation, let's stick to to that. I I feel sometimes that my whole history and personal history, Magda, um, is um, a byproduct of what we call the Cyprus problem. I mean, I, I finished uh, my secondary education in the 60s and I went for studies in the in London and I started with English literature. Why? Because I was early on interested in the human condition and uh, literature was the field that I felt was closest to understanding both, uh, you know, the broader, what we call human condition, but also the inner workings of relationships. So that's how I started. And this beginning, I think, ran through to this day because I'm very still very much interested in um, human beings, the way we are treated, the way we live, the way also that uh, opportunities uh, and discriminations and exclusions come along the uh, path of our life. So later on, with the Maria, Cyprus, Maria, uh, Maria can I interrupt you? I think yeah. it's something that I also like, but in a different way. It's why I have this passion for storytelling or story listening, yeah. because you hear right. the, the personal side of it. You have the you hear uh-huh. the, how people feel, how people experience things, how people think or how people think yeah. they are perceived. So right. I, th- I think that's it's a good balance to the theory and to the peace building, the stories yeah. behind. I, absolutely. And I think the personal story tells us a lot about our social, political, and cultural context in which we, uh, each one of us uh, grows up and develops and also comes to terms with many things that we want to get rid of mm. that were in in a way either imposed on us or 
are given to us as a natural way of being. Mm. Um, And the other thing I remember about myself and my identity is that I have always been an activist in the sense that I always felt questioning authority since I was in the primary school to you this day. <laughs> to so, you and me, sister, I'm exactly yeah. the same. <laughs> yeah. So these two, together with very early on experiences of sex inequalities in my own family, I think came to be all come together in my adult life and later in my studies in conflict resolution and political science. So it's a mixture in a way of diverse uh, educational backgrounds that defined both my scholarly work, but also my activist uh, engagement anywhere I happen to be living and especially in Cyprus. And and my teaching, actually, for almost 20 years at the University of Cyprus, I brought in this wealth of educational diversity in my background, together with my own personal experiences of being out in real life Mm. and in the field. So, Maria, let's... uh, I agree with you totally because I know everything I am or do is defined by the fact that I grew up in apartheid South Africa and being out mm-hmm. on the street yeah. defines who you are. It also being in the family you grow up in defines who you are. And when you put them all together, you come out because you take what you want or what re- resonates with you and you go forward. Exactly. Yeah. Maria, tell me about you and the Cyprus problem because most Cypriots especially the active ones, are defined by how they relate to and how they've reacted against the Cyprus problem? Well, um, unfortunately or fortunately, when the coup and the Turkish invasion happened, I was in London, I was studying in England, and I was going to return on July 20th. So July 20th, uh, was the um, invasion, and of course, all communication was uh, uh, broken, and uh, there were no way I could return. So the the the, the we come from the north. My parents uh, and my whole family come from the north. I was born in uh, Agios Ambrosios in Kyrenia, but I grew up in Nicosia when my father is a me- a businessman brought us all in Nicosia, but our property and our other home was in Ayos Ambrosios. So there was this personal, in a way, impact, but at the same time, I think I took the Cyprus problem as being a personal affair. I couldn't believe that my country has been divided ethnically, geographically, socially, psychologically. And um, so in December of 74, I was able to return to Cyprus for my Christmas vacation because I was doing my master's at that time and needed to return uh, for another year. So the first thing I did after I uh, saw my parents and, and many of my relatives who were scattered all over uh, the south in the island, 
I started going to all the refugee camps. It was the first winter of the displaced people in, um, uh, in the South. So I was able at that time to experience the first winter uh, of the refugees, of the displaced persons in conditions that were very, I mean, unreal for me in Cyprus. You know, we never had experienced that before. Mm -hmm. Although afterwards, through my readings, I discovered that the Turkish Cypriot, many thousands of Turkish Cypriots had experienced what we had experienced in 74, 10 years earlier. But nobody really spoke to us about it. So um, I made it afterwards my point that whatever I was going to write, it would include the other, mm. the other's experiences, the other spheres, the other's traumatic uh, past, and uh, together with the Greek Cypriot pain as well. So just to cut a short, uh, long story short, I dis- I collected a lot of the refugee stories at that time. Because what I found was that reading the international press on Cyprus, uh, the human aspect of the story was not really of interest to the journalists at that time. Only geopolitics, only issues that had to do with the legal aspects of the uh, problem, but the human impact was not there. So I wanted to publish these stories as my own form of resistance to what had been silenced or to what Mm. had not been known. So that was the first time I realized also how little I knew my community um, and their experiences. But I think that's the most important, us that have been in peace building for years, it's the most important thing you realize that when it's discussed in the public discourse, conflict is discussed in terms of land, geopolitical, strategic, armies, borders. It's very rarely discussed in terms of personal cost or human tragedy or impact yeah. on families. That is never, mm-hmm. it's very rarely part of the equation. And yet they expect the peace settlement to work when they haven't taken into consideration what the people that have to implement or live that settlement have experienced, have brought with them. Yeah, and exactly. And later on, when I worked uh, for three years for the Public Information Office, I continue continue, uh, going to the then settlements because after 77, 78, the uh, displaced people were moved from the tents and the refugee camps to settlements. Mm -hmm. So I continued also my interest at the micro level or or at the societal level, as I called it later in my thesis, and uh, continued collecting the stories and also taking diplomats and uh, journalists, foreign journalists, to speak with the people in their new um, uh, locations. Maria, uh, are there any stories? Yeah. Are there any stories that stand out? And many of these stories later on became a chapter in my PhD thesis, which I never thought I would go to America and then 
proceed with PhD? Yes, I think three of the main themes that were emerging at that time had to do with the first issue was with the elderly people and their understanding of time. For instance, when I would ask elderly people, how old are you, Papu or Yaya, in, uh, they would tell me, in my village, I was 77. Here, I don't know. And uh, when I would go on and say, how do you find living here and so on, their answer would be that I, I don't feel I'm a stranger here. It's not my, my place. In other words, what comes out is that their sense of time was disrupted after 74. So their sense of beingness and identity. And the second one, what gave them that feeling of, of being again was the actual location mm, of their own yes. home. So home and, uh, and time was one of the themes. The other theme was, I think, Sorry, the, can, I, can I interrupt you again? And that, is yeah. why, and that is why property is such a contested issue during the peace settlement. Because exactly. Pe- because people and I think it's very important to look at the property issue, not just in terms of... Square meters. What, yes, uh, who gets what and, and so on, but also what it means... Uh, psychologically mm. and existentially exactly. for many of the displaced people. However, speaking about these experiences, I was reading the research that was done a few months ago on both sides of Cyprus. And one of the findings with regard to the property issue and displaced experiences was that by in 10 years, only 8% of the Greek Cypriots will be remembering or will have an, a memory of the uh, 74 experiences mm. because we are now in the fourth generation. Yes. My parents and all my aunties and so on who would were talking to me in 74 about the time and the location of yeah, their identity and how their home and their uh, uh, trees mm. gave them their dignity and their existence are gone. Yes. Okay? And uh, I made my life differently. My kids, they look at the issue of property, you know, as something that is not connecting to anything emotional or to anything um, psychological. So this was one of the big themes uh, that uh, in those years. The other theme, I think, was the issue of discrimination and uh, inequalities that some of the refugees felt that they were uh, discriminated. Therefore, they were given less resources than other families and so on. And this had to do a lot with uh, the affiliation of the in organizations of, okay. of party politics. Okay. Yeah. 
Seit wann hat er denn da? That still continues to this day, I think. <laughs> yes, yeah, yes, that, that we still yeah. see today, but I didn't realize it was also part of the conversation in the aftermath of, oh, the, yes. of, the, of the... Of course, of course. And the third theme, of course, was the desire for return. And I remember that before Magarius uh, died, everybody uh, that I was speaking to and the refugees, they were hopeful that Magarius will really help them return to their homes and their properties. So after Magarios uh, died, I think their uh, hopes, but also the expectation started waning. The other topic as well, because it's a story I've heard you tell me, and every time I hear it, I get my hair stands on it, is the case of yeah. gender-based violence during the events of 74. And how, Absolutely, and, and how also the issue of rapes. Yes. I met quite a few uh, young women who were raped, and unfortunately at that time our society was not prepared to deal with this uh, trauma, and uh, they felt not only socially excluded, but very often re-traumatized and developed being in themselves a guilt that what happened to them was their own uh, doing yes. or their own uh, responsibility and so on. This for weeks and weeks after I, I met these women, I couldn't sleep. I'm you sure. know, it was very difficult. And when I looked for them afterwards, uh, they were not anymore in this refugee settlements or um, areas that I looked for. So a lot has been um, dealt with uh, later in poems or in some uh, uh, theater plays mm -hmm. about the plight of these women. And uh, I think it's one of the most, uh, I, I would say, shameful uh, moments in our uh, history of those uh, of those years which was yeah. f which was f made f worse when a few years ago the government decided yeah. to compensate the rape victims of 74 and uh, then that's right so but they... also the way they came to ask for uh, them to come uh, and um, give evidence and apply for this was to really show that they were truly raped yes can you believe this i mean and the state comes now to repunish them. Yes. You know? To throw um, the blame back on them that it's you must prove it to us. Yes. And also, I think it's a humiliation. Yes, total. And, and an attack to their dignity. And, and, and also, uh, that the way that they were treated by uh, the rapists, I think it, it doesn't really. Um, get better the way they are treated by many in our society yes. or by the state. Okay, no, I agree with you, Marie. You've had you've worn a lot of hats. All these experience and the I think one of the most not important ones besides an academic, you were also recently appointed to the Gender Equality Technical Committee, which was that feeds into the peace process, which is something that we have 
lobbied for for a long time and which is in an ideal world is something that should happen at every peace negotiations. What do you feel, um, how do you feel about that and how do you feel you can continue the work in the Gender Equality Technical Committee? I think that we were all very pleased when this, uh, the, when the two leaders uh, decided to establish uh, such a committee um, together with, a, 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 I think, another very important uh, committee, the Technical Committee on Education. Absolutely. These two, I think we needed them the most mm. because our education is still extremely nationalistic and also divisive, very selective. And um, the Technical Committee on Gender Equality is another one because of the exclusion of women from the peace process for decades and decades. Mm. So we were, and you know very well, the gender advisory team work that we've done since 2009. Mm. So 2015, when the technical committee was established, it was for us a very welcoming initiative. And some of us worked in the gender advisory team before, so we went there with a lot of energy, a lot of hopes, and also um, ready to make an intervention. Now, whether we achieved that or not, I think there are different uh, uh, viewpoints. But in my view, I think we need to do a lot more than uh, it's been done until now. We had to also struggle with bureaucratic mm. hurdles. And at the same time, not only that, but constraints in the way that the work of the committee was to be channeled to the negotiators team and to the leaders, which was extremely cumbersome. So we did work very, very hard many, many hours. of us in the committee, many hours, many nights, and so on, and we produced a lot of work. Now, where this work and how it's going to be utilized, it still remains to be seen. Today, we have an, the other aspect of this work is that the technical committees, and especially ours, would meet when there are talks going mm. on. So when the talks are interrupted or deadlocked, then there is no, not motivation, I would say there was no reason mm. for the committee to be meeting when we don't know what is asked of us. So we were not really briefed at what stage and what was produced in the actual at the actual negotiating mm. table. But so... We need, I think, to develop a closer uh, dialogic relationship with the various various stakeholders in the peace negotiations. But uh, um, Maria, can I can I interrupt you? I think this could be an opportunity to develop the relationship, to develop what Ronald could pay. It's a, a learn a lesson to be learned that you could develop right. in a different way or yeah. just broaden it. Because it certainly was yeah, exactly. a very important, very important. It's got a lot of potential, and maybe it just needs to work in a different way or 
in a different way to be more effective because it is there and it can't have and it can be useful and it is useful because there is work absolutely and and the the second uh, i think pillar of the work it has to do with us having the power to go out mm. to go to the communities yes. to speak to the civil society to speak to other you know women's organizations and get feedback and interact in a way of building you know the agenda of uh, gender equality and the peace uh, uh, agreement mm. together no I, i agree with you i agree with you it, it can't work alone it's got to work as you said you've got to connect to the stakeholders at the leadership level but it's also got to go outwards to the to the, to the, to the civil, civil society, civil society yeah, to the exactly. grassroots yeah maria what else what else do you feel is part of your identity and you've got a lot of stuff so i'm not I even think, i'm not going to pick for you i think one part of it apart from uh, my teaching which uh, as i told you i was very dedicated and i really introduced for the first time uh, the field of conflict resolution as a course, which was very popular at the, my department. And also other students from other departments would take it. And also I was the first one to introduce four or five different courses on gender. Uh, it wasn't easy, but it was something that I felt we cannot have a department in a new university without courses on gender studies. So the other aspect was to really introduce the conflict analysis of the Cyprus conflict mm-hmm. from a point of view of including the other. Of, and of course, at the time in the 90s, you know, and which was unheard of, how can you talk about the pain of the Turkish Cypriots and uh, and their trauma and their... Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Don't worry. Okay, I've... right. This was something that I had met some resistance from some students. How could I speak about, you know, the Turkish Cypriots or give them Uh, a voice, yes. And articles written by Turkish Cypriot uh, colleagues and so on. And uh, the other aspect, I think, of my work was my uh, was being a trainer, mm. a trainer in conflict resolution and gender. And on this, uh, I was very lucky to work with organizations, women's organizations in Greece, For instance, Kekme, mm. and I remember the very first workshop that I was asked to work there as a trainer with the South African organization Accord mm. on um, with women from the Balkans. It yeah. was in the 90s when democratization was being, you know, addressed as a very important issue in the uh, uh, Balkans, and Greece was one of the countries that could, in a way, help with uh, in that direction. So we brought women from the Balkans and a lot uh, for eight days uh, training. Mm. So that was, for me, an eye-opening, learning a lot about the needs at that moment of women in this society. And my other, I think, defining experience was going to 
uh, Afghanistan. I was invited by UNFPA Mm -hmm. uh, that was doing work at that time with Leslie Abdullah and another British trainer in communications. And that was the first time I really felt that I was doing something very, very useful for these women. Uh, Why was it it different, Maria? Why was it different when you went to Afghanistan? What made it different? It was the time when the Taliban's, it was the transition period with the Taliban's being out of the way, you know, the American intervention, you remember, and so on. And uh, they were now having the women having, and of course, during the Taliban period, women's education and girls' education was extremely restricted, Mm -hmm. if not at all happening. So now the women were very eager to restart the process of educating uh, the young girls, but also their challenge that they wanted us to help them with and develop arguments about was how to face the elders in their different provinces and communities who were deciding what kind of education or uh, education the girls should would have, have yes. or, no, or not have, mm. okay? So if they decided that they sh- school for them is, is enough for three years and then they will get married and so on, which was the traditional view of many of the elders, mm. these women, they wanted to ask, to tell, uh, to discuss with us ways of really building up a relationship with them in a way that it would seem that the girls' education and its importance came from the elders, not so much from the women. Okay, so it's a way of actually suggesting the idea. Yes. And the the second experience that was different was that in the streets of Kabul, I would see a lot of young people girls and young women still wearing the burqa. And I thought with my, you know, Eurocentric <laughs> uh, kind of thinking lens, how come they're still wearing the burqa? You know, they were being liberated. How oppressed mm. these women must be. And when I asked uh, uh, an Italian lawyer who was also working you know, on similar projects with us uh, to explain to me why this is happening, still going on. She said, because they use the burqa as um, a protective tool, you know, Mm. a mechanism from sexual harassment. Okay. So when they walk out into the public, the burqa, in a way, puts off many of the sexual harassment um, uh, experiences that otherwise they would face. So this was for me, you know, a very big lesson to understand that not always what we see is being translated into oppression. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's actually quite interesting. So they wear the same way men wear armor to protect them in Mm -hmm. war women wear a burqa to protect them from sexual harassment in the street. Very interesting. 
but it was a coming of age in Afghanistan. It must have been very exciting. And they also have quite a, they've developed into a parliament that's quite feminist. There are a lot of strong well, they, I think uh, they have gone a long way. Yes. But still, they have many, many challenges. Absolutely. Because they, even when women run for the parliament and so on, they still face uh, harassment and they still face, you know, the traditional kind of ways of, of behaving and, and, and also of, of the way they talk. Um, and but, but also they, another experience uh, I had was in, um, in, in Bratislava when we brought together, again with, with UNFPA, when we brought together from the Arab countries, you know, okay. some that were really, you know, themselves uh, activists uh, in their own way and fighting for human rights. And uh, at the same time, for their rights, you know, to be representative decision-making um, processes. So that was the other aspect. I realized the long way we still have to do in our region, in the Middle East region, in, in many of the Mediterranean uh, countries, uh, which I realized afterwards when I went to Tunisia as well, of, of the ways that we still have to build together, I think, this, what I call a feminist solidarity mm. uh, campaign to both help each other, but at the same time, realize our common struggles mm. and the common issues uh, that we all have to face, irrespective of our ethnicities or or our religion, or, or language, and so on. So that was, uh, for me, this being a trainer in this kind of uh, uh, context and um, groups broadened my belief in, uh, and at the same time, my determination to go on working for gender equality and women's rights. Mariamo, this is a good point to ask you. You spoke about solidarity and a common vision. The Mediterranean Woman Mediators Network that you're part of, what has it brought to you? What do you think it can it's brought to you and you can bring to it? I think the Mediterranean Women's uh, Network was a great initiative. And it came, I think, at a time when the UN Security Council Resolution 1325 has been more and more more and more countries and women's organizations have been familiarized with this and how we can use it as a big tool. I think some of the concepts I have been uh, using all along in my, you know, over 40 or so years of work have been uh, reinforced with my participation in this network, namely the issue of inclusion, mm -hmm. uh, the issue also of meaningful participation, the issue, I think, of democracy and human security mm -hmm. and how these are understood from a women's perspective and from a feminist perspective. Mm -hmm. And the other aspect that 
has been very useful for me in the network, who was to really become more forceful into why women sitting at the negotiating table and participating in the peace process before, during, and after an agreement is being signed are extremely important mm. because without women and without gender equality, we cannot have real peace and real reconciliation mm. and real development. And I think we need to come together and to, be, uh, to understand also that women's empowerment and women's development is an organic, ongoing process, yes. which is part of all our, uh, of all our social forces. Mm. And men are included in this as well, because what women are struggling for are for a better society where men and women, I think, will not have to think about their gender per se. I think that's the strongest message we need to get across, that the reason we need women at the table is not because women want something different or want something more. We want to come into the conversation because we all need to be in this conversation. It's not. Yes, and also uh, the aspect that I think this... Um, stereotype that women will sit there and only bring women's issues or women's uh, rights. No, women are also part of the bigger social and cultural uh, and political context. They are not only bringing their the issues of women per se, but also the broader social and cultural and political issues that will impact every citizen. I agree with you, and it doesn't mean because it's also the qualities they seem to think that women will always be kind and women will always be conciliatory. Yeah. Irrelevant. Yeah. It doesn't have to do with the biological. Right. It's actually the inclusivity in everything. There's got to be a, a broader conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the network needs to be supported uh, by the different uh, governments, the different uh, I think, foundations and so on. So we could uh, combine both the training and skill empowering of women mm. uh, and research. We really need both, you know, to come up with real data about uh, what it takes for our societies to acknowledge uh, the power that women uh, have and to share power mm. because, you know, the negotiating table has often been perceived as a space where all the stakeholders are struggling for power. Mm. No, we need to, fa to not disseminate, to spread out the um, issue of, of power within our society and not just you know, the stakeholders. I agree with you. It's not a power struggle on the table like a pie. We share it and who gets the most peace. Right. It's got to be yeah. spread out. I totally agree. We've got to unpack this picture of what the peace negotiations are and who needs to be there. And that it's not a final destination. It's a continuous yeah. journey. It's a continuous right. journey.
I, um, I want to end this off with by asking you, if I had to ask you what your best quality is, what your most, the quality of you within you is your most, not productive, most useful, the best quality you have. What is a quality you would tell me Maria Khachibavlu has? I can think of a lot, but you <laughs> think a loud one. <laughs> I think um, one of, uh, of the qualities is my analytical mind. I like to analyze things and to go deeper, and to, you know, compare. I'm a comparativist uh, as well. Uh, the other thing is, uh, I think I have a lot of um, uh, experiences which have helped me develop further my compassion and my empathy for women's, uh, but also for minorities, mm. for the different people, you know, difference for me as a concept has also been one of the concepts that came on very early on in my life by realizing my own difference uh, in uh, early on. So appreciating difference as a strength and not as a marginalized mm. um, identity, you know. At, at the other thing is that my hunger for learning. I'm constantly a learner. I never stop uh, searching and having curiosity to learn. I'm also, I love to train. I'm, all the places that uh, I worked as a trainer and, and so on, I combine my different, I think, viewpoints mm. uh, that come, as we said, from my different educational backgrounds together into the conversation of training. Okay, that's quite a, that's quite a few, but you actually have more. And I, I think your, your three-dimensionalism is one of your good qualities. You don't, because you bring in a, lot, you. a lot of tools or a lot of perceptions, I think you don't see things one-dimensionally. And I think that's the quality we need in anything we do. Yeah. I'll end this off with something one of the other mediators said to me and is fighting for, and she's fighting for a freedom of expression because when people are different and when they're warring parties, if they are free to speak about themselves, you're free to find out who they are. Exactly. Yeah, and I, and freedom I, of expression yeah. uh, is for me extremely, and living in a conflict society, this very often limits us because of how we will be perceived and which and how we will be labeled. Mm. So freedom yeah. of expression allows us, allows everyone's differences to come forward and it gives you the opportunity to understand. You don't need to like, but to understand. And that's part of the reconciliation we're fighting for. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, Agreed. Maria, a very fascinating conversation yet again and we could go on for hours. Thank you very much. That's for, right. <laughs> thank you very much for being on her stories today, and look forward to seeing thank you. Thank you. Soon. And, and safe journey back from here. <laughs> good night. Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Her Stories, please leave comments, suggestions, and reviews, and share with anyone you feel may find this equally interesting. A big thank you to our sponsor, UN Woman, and see you on the next episode.